Uh, thank you, Be Free Alton, for having me. Um, I've been in New Hampshire two years now, and I've been eager to join you one of these Sundays. Um, a big thanks to Pastor Ben and um, to Jerry for you know, getting everything ready for today. And a big shout out to whoever sets up the Little Debbie snacks. That was like the best pre-game snack I've had before, before a sermon in a good while. So keep up that ministry. Um, well, today we're going to carry on in your series, The Songs of the King, The Psalms in the Life of David. So I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety. You can just listen along. We're going to be in Psalm 56. I'm going to read Psalm 56, and then let's go to God for his help. Psalm 56. To the choir master, according to the dove on the far-off terebinths, a miktam of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's pray for God's help. Father, we thank you for the life of your servant, the king, poet, warrior, musician, David. Thank you for the gift of this song and how it speaks to us in our fear. Speak to us directly through your word and by your spirit, and help us to become more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our psalm this morning addresses fear in general and the fear of man specifically. Here, here's my shot at defining the fear of man. Fear of man is that sinful desire for the approval of others that controls our thoughts and our actions. I'll give that to you again. Fear of man is sinful desire for the approval of others that controls our thoughts and our actions. If you think about your typical day, uh, fear shapes most of it. You wake up and you're anxious about your to-do list for that day. You go to work and you, you might go to the, the coffee the coffee spot and laugh at a joke that really isn't funny and is inappropriate because you want to keep that coworker's approval. Or maybe you take your kids to the playground and the whole time you're anxious and fearful because of that sketchy van in the parking lot by the playground. You come home from work or the playground, you turn on the news as you fix dinner and you think the world is crumbling, the nation is falling apart. 
Maybe after dinner you go for an evening walk and you run into a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. And the thought occurs in your mind while you're talking to them, maybe I should mention church or maybe I should invite them to, to follow Jesus. But immediately fear says, no, that would be weird. What would your neighbor think about you? And then finally, we go to bed and we think through the worst case scenarios of all those fears from the day. Maybe if you're a kid or your kid's in the kid's ministry, they go to bed fearful every night, wondering where the monster is, under their bed, in their closet. Fear marks most of our day. Well, this psalm is about fear, and the situation that David is in is he's running from his father-in-law, who's trying to pin him down with a spear, trying to kill him. He finds a hideout spot, but then one of his father-in-law's servants, Doeg the Edomite, he rats him out and says, hey, Saul, David's right over here. Let's get him. So Saul leaves his, uh, David leaves his hiding place, and he goes to Gath, which is kind of the, the hometown of Goliath. This is enemy territory. And maybe somehow he thinks, like, this is the most unlikely place for me to hide, so, you know, my father-in-law Saul's not going to find me. But he goes, and they recognize him there in Gath. And people say, hey, wasn't that the dude the one who killed Goliath, our champion. Maybe Goliath had family members in Gath still who were eager to kill David and exact revenge on him. So this is the situation of fear that David finds himself in. And David is afraid. If you read the original account in 1 Samuel, it says he was very afraid or exceedingly afraid. But he's not crippled by fear. And that should give us hope. He walks through the fear all the way through it and makes it out on the other side. He even gets confident to the point where he says, what can man do to me? We're going to explore how he did that this morning. In Psalm 56, this is kind of the heartbeat of the passage. Faith in the God who is for us carries us through fear. Faith in the God who is for us carries us through fear. In these first four verses, we see that David has faith amid fear. He begins in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God. Those are precious words for David. O God. It's tricky parenting my kids when they hear so many people saying, Oh my God, or Oh God. And they're like, Can I say that? I'm like, Yes, but only when you're praying or praising. <laughs> these are precious words. One of my favorite things about David is his intense Godward focus. In whatever situation David is in, he brings it to God. He turns to God in sadness, in joy, in loneliness, in longing, in rejection. And here, he turns to God when he's fearful. This was a spiritual discipline for David. In Psalm 16, he says, I set the Lord always before me. David refused to act like God did not exist. He refused to act like God was not present and active in his life. And so when David is surrounded by enemies and he's very afraid, he says, Oh God, be gracious to me. I think we could learn from David here the first step when we have debilitating, crippling fear, whatever it may be. The first step out of it, through it, is naming your fear before God. Acknowledge your fear and ask God for help. His ears are open to your prayers. He's attentive to your desperate calls, to your groans. 
And so David gives us this model of naming our specific fears before God, writing it down or speaking it out loud to God. And he says, my specific fear now is I'm surrounded by enemies who all day long are trying to trample on me and destroy my life. Verse 3, he says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. King David was afraid. I think we need to let that sink in. Um, often we think about the saints of the Old Testament and the New Testament wrongly. We think they're Stoics. They're immovable. They're not really human like us. They have that little halo thing over their head. But David was a man just like us. Remember, this psalm was likely composed by David in quiet reflection when he was thinking about what God brought him through. Maybe in the quiet of his courtyard, he was penning this psalm. But in the actual moment, he was terrified and he actually acted insane, crazy, pulling his beard, letting spit fall out of his mouth so the king of Gath would think he was crazy and kick him out of his courts. This shows us that even mature Christians can deal with deep anxiety and fear, just as David does here. But he doesn't stay afraid. Verses 3 and 4 move us, for, move us from being afraid to not afraid. It almost sounds simplistic. He says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So the big question you should be asking this morning is, how did David go from not being afraid, or from being afraid to not being afraid? And that's the question we're going to answer this morning. But before we get to that, let's examine David's specific reasons for fear and our reasons for fear. In verses 5 through 7, we move to the second idea here, the reason for fear. If you notice two times in verse 5, he uses the word all. He is in a terrifying situation. He says, all day long, all their thoughts are evil towards me. David was surrounded by his enemies. They did not have warm and fuzzy thoughts towards him. And they were consumed with this one thought all day long. Destroy David. Destroy David. Humanly speaking, this is as bad as it can get. I was trying to think of a modern-day equivalent. Um, and if you hear, hear stories from people who have been in prison, uh, maybe a modern-day equivalent of where David is in this situation is a prisoner who's in the courtyard and suddenly realizes, all my boys are gone. And then he looks up and realizes the opposing gang is surrounding him in the prison courtyard with shanks. Their eyes are glaring at him. They're clenching their teeth, and they're ready to stab him. And he looks around, and there's no guards. I don't know if any of you have been in prison or experienced this, but you've probably heard horror stories like that. This is kind of what David was feeling. He was surrounded by enemies who hated him. No friends around him. No, no guards to deliver him out of this situation. And so this is his reason for fear. And I doubt many of us in this room have experienced that kind of scenario. There might be a handful of you in this room, I don't know your story, who have been surrounded by people who want to kill you. There might be even a little more people who have had a father-in-law who wanted to kill you. Um, but I doubt that we've experienced this height of fear of man. But we all do experience some level of fear of other people. We fear losing a job. 
if we don't comply with company standards. We fear losing friends or family because of our commitment to Christ. We fear adult kids turning away from us, and we fear even more adult kids turning away from Jesus. We fear something happening to our little ones at the playground when we turn around our back or in the parking lot of Target. We fear men. And so what are we supposed to do with all these fears? What did David do? Again, he says, oh God. He calls God's justice down on his enemies. If you are being harassed or attacked verbally or physically by people in your life or in an abusive relationship, this is part of your hope and stay. David looks to God, the judge of all the earth, and he says, oh God, you see, judge these people for their crimes. Well, we explored David's fears and ours. We've talked about how it's possible to have fear in the midst of faith in the midst of fear. But we still haven't answered that question. How can we move from fear to no fear? How can we move from fear to even having courage and saying, what can man do to me? We get our answer in verses 8 through 10. This is the reason for David's faith. And I want to read these verses because they are the heart of the passage. Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The reason David could have faith in this terrifying situation is because he knew without a doubt that God was for him. He says, this I know, that God is for me. David said, God, you're not indifferent towards me. You're not annoyed with my fears, however big or small. You're not against me, God. You're for me, God. You're on my side. You seek my good. Man, I wish I could be more like David in this area. When trials come our way, what's one of the first thoughts we have? God, you're against me. You hate me. You've abandoned me. When we receive news that we lost a job or a loved one, Maybe we're rejected at school or at work. We think, God, you're against me. But that was not so with David. Even in the most dire circumstances, he knew rock bottom. His firmest conviction was that God was for him. This is the non-negotiable for Christians. God is for me. If you have this matter settled in your heart, settled in your mind that God is for you, you can face an army. This faith in God's favor is the shield of faith to protect you from the devil's arrows. So come hell or high water, we as Christians say, God is for me. And God shows that he's for David. God shows that he's for us with his, by his showing tender care for us. If you look at verse 8, we see that God is attentive to our suffering. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Verse 8 says that God is there when you can't fall asleep at night and you are tossing in your bed. 
God is there when your mind is swimming with worst-case scenarios in your relationships at work. God marks them down in a book. My wife, um, she sent me away yesterday because she's very kind towards me, but she said, like, babe, you're tired. You need to get right. Just, like, get some rest for your soul. Get some rest for your body. So I went by a river. I'm in, I live in Henniker. Does anyone know where Henniker is? All right. Only Henniker on earth. I went by the Kentuckic River, found my little spot, and I sat down with my journal. And I'm an awful journaler. Like, I haven't journaled. Big things have happened in the past three months, and I've barely journaled. So I was like, where do I start? What I figured is, I'm going to start with what's most important to me right now. And what this verse says is, of all the thing that God, uh, things that God marks down in your life, he looks at your tossings at night when you're filled with fear and anxiety, and he marks those down in his journal. God cares. More than that, he even keeps our tears in a bottle. This is poetic language showing his care for our tears. This word bottle actually refers to kind of like a leather bag, like a wineskin. Remember in David's day, this is ancient Middle East, very arid, a lot of desert around. And so um, in this desert land, water or liquid was very precious. You would put wine or water or milk in these wineskins. And so here, God is using his, his precious wineskin to carry our tears. The big hot tears of frustration or shame. The quiet tears of feeling abandoned. Loud sobs of desperation. Your tears matter to the Father. He loves you and he cares for you. Well, you may be thinking this is good for David. Like he knew for sure that God cared for him. But how do I know that God cares for me? And I want to just sit here for a little bit. Because that is one of the first places Satan goes when he attacks a Christian. He attacks them at, at the most foundational level, saying God does not care for you. He is against you. He's not for you. So how can we get a settled sense, a felt sense that God is actually for me? Well, how did David do it? David went to God's word. He praises God's word. David had likely the first five books of Moses. He also had God's spoken word to him through the prophet Samuel, who anointed him with oil and says, you are God's beloved. You are going to be the next king of Israel. And so David didn't look to his feelings or to the situation he was in to determine if God was for him or not. David instead, he looked at God's unchanging, rock-solid word. This word, as David heard from a youth of God's exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, he knew that God loved his people and saved them from slavery. This word from Samuel's lips saying, you are God's beloved, you are the king. David looked to this rock-solid, objective word that God is for me and not at his circumstances. So how do we know that God is for us? Well, over the years, I've asked friends, especially non-Christian friends, do you know that God loves you? Or if you assume, assume that he's for you, why do you think God is for you? And here's two common answers I get to that question. And both of them are unreliable. The first is health or wealth. I've had many friends say over the years, I know that God is for me because I woke up this morning and I'm healthy and life is good. Well, Jesus says this, God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and on the unrighteous. God puts food in the bellies of wicked people and righteous people. That's called common grace. So just because you're healthy and you have food in your fridge and some money in your bank account, 
that is not a reliable sign that God is for you. And on the flip side, if you lack health or wealth, that doesn't prove that God is against you either. So this is a common, unreliable evidence for God's uh, being for you. Another one is religious performance. So I've asked friends, how do you know God is for you? How do you know you're right with God? People often say this, I go to church, I give money, and overall, I'm a good person. Don't we hear that so often? Overall, I'm a good person. Well, the Pharisees, they tithe. Overall, outwardly, they were good people. And yet, they were some of the furthest people from Jesus in his day. Jesus says on the last day that many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So these two things, health and wealth or religious performance, aren't sure signs that you are right with God, that God is on your side and for you. There is only one rock-solid proof that God is for you, and that is the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. As the children's song says, Jesus loves me, this I know. How? For the Bible tells me so. Christ crucified for you, Christ on the cross, dying for your sins in your place, is the eternal evidence that God is for you. God is on your side. And in Romans 8, Paul builds this case to prove to his people without a shadow of a doubt that God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. He says in Romans 8, 31, just as Emily has read, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know God is for us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If, Jesus gave, if God the Father gave you Jesus, the most precious person in all the universe, won't he give you all other things? Don't you know that he's for you? And so Paul reasons with his people who are suffering. These people who are suffering for the name of Jesus. He says, No, even if we suffer, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. This is an extensive list. He's reaching for every single thing possible, imaginable, and saying, none of these things, nothing in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you are surrounded by enemies, physical or spiritual, when you are consumed with crippling anxiety, look to the cross where your your Savior is broken for you and say, this I know, that God is for me. Jesus died to take our sins. He rose to pray for you. He's interceding for us. And he'll return to bring you into his presence forever in the new earth. This is how we know that God is for us. David ends the section by saying, what can man do to me? I mean, that's a pretty bold statement when you're in the prison courtyard and the opposing gang is surrounding you with shivs. You know, that's, that's a bold statement to say, what can man do to me? Um, we all kind of raise our hand and say, like, David, they could do a lot. <laughs> like, they could jack you up, really. Um, and in one sense, man could do a lot to us. They can divorce us. They can take away our job. They could take away our dignity. 
on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, they could take away our food and clothing. But in a whole nother sense, man could do nothing to you if you are in Christ. Remember the words of Paul. Man cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ. One of the most comforting paragraphs to anyone who's, who's in a fearful state is um, from this catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, question one. And you can look this up for later if you're in a season of fear. The question asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? This is the answer to that. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. The worst that a man or a woman could do to you is kill you and send you into the presence of Jesus. And even there you belong to him, body and soul. That is the worst thing man could do to you. And so this, through this knowledge that God is for us, we're safely delivered through fear into confidence and comfort before God. And that's where David ends, to, to meditate on being delivered by God. So let's look at those last two verses. He says, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Notice again that intensely Godward focus that David has. He says, I'm going to begin with you, God, pleading for your mercy and your grace. And I'm going to end with you, God, praising you for your deliverance. And I want you to notice that deliverance is the last word for all believers. Whatever trial you're going through now, whatever fear you're going through now, will not outlast God in his presence. He's going to bring you through it into his presence. Verse 13 says, the reason God delivers us is that we may walk before him in the light of life. God saved David. God will save you and deliver you because he delights in you, and you're going to walk in his presence. As we listed early in the sermon, um, our whole day could be racked with fear. And I can't promise that life will get any easier. In fact, we have a lot of promises in the New Testament that say life will be hard. Your fears might get worse this evening. Your fears might become crippling this week. But I can promise you two things from this passage. If you are looking to Jesus for life now and forever... God is for you. God is for you in Christ. And he will deliver you from this fear. Let's pray. Father, give us the shield of faith to know that you are for us. Protect us from the lie of the devil that whatever trial may come our way, whatever suffering Help us not to go to thinking you're against us, but help us to say, this I know, that you are for me. So send your Holy Spirit, convince us, Father, of your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.